You're listening to audio from Liberty Church in the Harrisburg-Camp Hill area of Pennsylvania. For more information, please visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org. That's Liberty with an I, Harrisburg.org. This morning, I have the privilege of preaching the third sermon in our current series, which is called Remembering for Good. My sermon is titled, Work, and we will be considering Nehemiah chapter 3. Along with being a church planter slash pastor, I also have a full-time job working as an estimator for a construction company, uh, which means I spend a lot of my day analyzing and studying and looking at blueprints and structural drawings. With that being said, the outline of my sermon this morning is kind of like a blueprint, Uh, I know we have a lot of engineers in the room, so hopefully this isn't lost on you. But the first part of my sermon is a plan view of Nehemiah chapter 3. And for those of you who are not engineers, who are not in the construction field, uh, the first part of my sermon is going to consider Nehemiah chapter 3 in the scope of the entire book of Nehemiah. Uh, We're going to look at the whole together. Uh, Then the second part of my sermon is a detail view. It's a view that is zoomed in on a specific thing, and we are going to look at work, the concept of work, the topic of work, uh, and we'll look at that in a detailed nuance. And I point this out to you because I want you to see two things from our text this morning. So the first thing I want you to see is this, the plan view of God's sovereignty and his covenant faithfulness, likewise, I want you to see the detail view of not just work in general or the concept of work or the topic of work, but more specifically, the detail view of your work and the value of your vocation. So if you have a Bible, please turn to Nehemiah chapter 3. If you're going to use one of those hardcover Bibles, uh, the black hardcover Bibles that Matt was talking about, we are on page 300. And 99. So this is Nehemiah chapter 3. Then Elishabib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred, as far as the Tower of Hanel. And next to him, the men of Jericho built. And next to them, Zachur, the son of Emir, built. The sons of Hassanah built the fish gate. They laid its beams and set its doors and bolts and its bars. And next to them, Mermoth, the son of Uriah, son of Hakaz, repaired. And next to them, Meshulam, the son of Barakiah, son of Meshzebel, repaired. And next to them, Zadok the son of Banah, repaired. And next to them, the Techites repaired, but their nobles would not stoop to serve their Lord. Joida, the son of Peseah, and Meshulam, the son of Besodiah, repaired the gate of Yeshanah. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts and its bars, and next to them repaired Melatiah, the Gibeonite, and Jadon, the Marianthonite the men of Gibeon, and the Mizpah, the seat of the governor of the province beyond the river. 
Next to them, Uziel, the son of Herhiah, goldsmiths repaired. Next to him, Hananiah, one of the perfumers repaired. And they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Next to them, Rephiah, the son of Hur, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired. Next to them, Jediah, the son of Haramth, repaired, opposite his house. And next to him, Hattush, the son of Hashbaniah, repaired. Melchah, the son of Haram, and Hashub, the son of Pehath-Moab, repaired another section and the Tower of the Ovens. Next to him, Shalom, the son of Halohesh, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired, he and his daughters. Hanun and the inhabitants of Zenoah repaired the valley gate. They rebuilt it and set its doors, its bolts and its bars, and repaired a thousand cubits of the wall as far as the dung gate. Melchiah, the son of Rechab, ruler of the district of Beth Hakarim, repaired the dung gate. He rebuilt it and set its doors, its bolts and its bars. And Shalom, the son of Kol Hose, ruler of the district of Mizpah, repaired the fountain gate. He rebuilt it and covered it and set its doors, its bolts and its bars. And he built the wall of the pool of Shelah, of the king's garden, as far as the stairs that go down from the city of David. After him, Nehemiah, the son of Azbuk, ruler of the half-district of Bethzur, repaired to a point opposite the tombs of David, as far as the artificial pool and as far as the house of the mighty men. After him, the Levites repaired, Rehum, the son of Benai. Next to him, Hashabiah, ruler of the half-district of Kelah, repaired for his district. After him, their brothers repaired, Bevi, the son of Henadan, ruler of the half-district of Kelah. Next to him, Ezer, son of Jeshua, ruler of Mizpah, repaired another section opposite the ascent to the armory at the buttress. After him, Baruch, the son of Zabiah, repaired another section from the buttress to the door of the house of Elishabib, the high priest. After him, Mermoth, the son of Uriah, son of Hakaz, repaired another section from the door of the house of Elshabeb to the end of the house of Elshabeb. After him, the priests, the men of the surrounding area, repaired. After them, Benjamin and Hashub repaired opposite their house. After them, Azariah, the son of Messiah, son of Ananiah, repaired beside him one house. After him, Benu, the son of Henadad, repaired another section from the house of Azariah to the buttress and to the corner. Palal, the son of Uzai, repaired opposite the buttress and the tower projecting from the upper house of the king at the court of the guard. After him, Pediah and the son of Parosh and the temple servants living on Ophel repaired to a point opposite the water gate on the east and the projecting tower. After him, the Tekoites repaired another section opposite the great projecting tower as far as the wall of Ophel. Above the horse gate, the priests repaired, each one opposite his own house. After them, Zadok, the son of Emir, repaired opposite his own house. And after him, Shemaiah, the son of Shekinah, the keeper of the east gate, repaired. And after him, Hananiah, the son of Shilamiah, the Hanun, the sixth son of Zalaphath, repaired another section. After him, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, repaired opposite his chamber. 
After him, Malchai, one of the goldsmiths, repaired as far as the house of the temple servants and to the merchants opposite the muster gate and to the upper chamber of the corner and between the upper chamber of the corner and the sheep gate. The goldsmiths and the merchants repaired. This is the very word of God. Will you bow your head with me in prayer? Heavenly Father, by the powerful work of your Holy Spirit, would you show us the planned view of your sovereignty and your covenant faithfulness? And would you show us the value of our work? We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. So to start with, I want us to see the plan view. Here in Nehemiah chapter 3, I want you to see that God's sovereignty and his covenant faithfulness is on full display, explicitly so. After God delivered the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob from slavery in Egypt, which is recorded for us in the book of Exodus, he made a covenant with them, and God said, you will be my people, and I will be your God, and I will give you a land that will establish you as citizens in my kingdom, based upon the promises I made to your forefather, Abraham, which those promises are recorded for us in Genesis chapter 12. And through the prophet Moses, God warned his people and said, if you disobey my law and transgress my commandments, you will be disciplined by my hand and invading armies and nations will come and harass you. Following the great salvation from Egypt, only one generation lived in faithfulness to God before the people began to rebel and worship false gods. In fact, we are famously told that everyone did what was right in his own eyes. God, being faithful to his word, did in fact discipline his people as he promised, and neighboring states and people groups invaded and harassed God's people. The books of Judges and Ruth catalog this for us. And what we see in those two books is this recurring theme where the people drift far from God. But by his grace and his discipline, God draws his wayward people back to himself. Essentially, there is this pattern of covenant breaking on behalf of the people in their sin and in their rebellion. But simultaneously, we see the covenant faithfulness of God displayed in which he is disciplining but calling his people back to himself. He disciplines, but he does not destroy them. They remain his people, and he remains their God. Even in light of great apostasy, God still loved his people, cared for his people, and remained faithful to the covenant he made with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and even Moses. Following the time of the judges, God made another covenant, this time with David, in which he promised that David would always have an heir seated on the throne in God's kingdom. But during the era of the kings, we see the same rebellion and apostasy that was prevalent during the time of the judges. God's people drift from him in mind, body, and spirit. 
these things are recorded for us in First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, and First and Second Chronicles. And again, through his prophets, God warned that his people would be overtaken by foreign invaders and armies would come and carry them off into exile if they remained in their sin and rebellion. In the northern kingdom, Amos and Hosea were prophets who preached this message. And in the southern kingdom, the prophets Joel, Micah, Isaiah, Zephaniah, Habakkuk, and Jeremiah all preached the same warning. They prophesied in detail, stating that God's people would be taken away into exile, but he would be faithful to bring them back to himself, back to their land, and reestablish his kingdom. Again, they would remain his people, and he would remain to be their God. As we've already heard Matt articulate in this sermon series thus far, in the year 722 B.C., the northern kingdom of Israel was defeated and the people were carried off to Babylon. And likewise, in the year 586 B.C., the southern kingdom of Judah met the same demise. And during the exile, God spoke to his people through a prophet by the name of Ezekiel. And Ezekiel foretold of redemption and restoration of the kingdom, the restoration of the temple and the restoration of the city. Ezekiel also prophesied about a new king who would reign in this rebuilt and restored city of Jerusalem, one from David's lineage, one who would be just and righteous. Ezekiel also prophesied about the restoration and the redemption that would also take place in the hearts of God's people through the means of a new covenant, not just a restoration of the city and the temple, but the actual hearts of the individuals would be redeemed and restored. As we already know, Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah, in various stages, brought the people of God out of exile and back into his kingdom. Very much like the exodus from Egypt, God delivered his people once again with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. As Matt pointed out last week, the refrain of Ezra and Nehemiah is this, the hand of my God has been upon me. And as we consider Nehemiah chapter 3 this morning, as we read about the people of God rebuilding the city walls and the gates, what we cannot miss is this. We cannot miss this point. The rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem ultimately display the faithfulness and sovereignty of God. Because the walls of God's city are being rebuilt here in Nehemiah chapter 3, God is explicitly proven to be faithful to all of his promises. From Genesis chapter 1 all the way up to Nehemiah chapter 3, God has faithfully kept all of his covenants and faithfully fulfilled every single one of his promises. He kept his promises to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, and David. He did not forget his people, nor did he allow his people to be destroyed. He did not leave them nor forsake them. In fact, in Ezekiel chapter 11, God says, even in your exile, I remained a sanctuary for you, my people. And we see that displayed in the story of Esther, where God steps in and saves his people, an entire nation of people that he loves, he saves them from death. 
Here in Nehemiah chapter 3, God has fulfilled his promises in delivering his people from their exile and miraculously bringing them back into his land. And not just bringing them back, but also rebuilding the temple and the city, which meant this for the people of God who were returning from exile with Nehemiah. Because God had been faithful to all of these promises, the people were brought back, the temple was being rebuilt, the city walls are being rebuilt now in Nehemiah 3. Because of all that, the people could with rightful expectation anticipate that God would be faithful to his covenant with David. And a righteous and just king would soon be on the way to sit and rule with justice and equity over his people. Spoiler alert. Jesus Christ is the king that Ezekiel prophesied about. And the king that the people of Nehemiah's day were beginning to grow anxious for. And in fact, he is the king that our hearts, even now this day, are longing for, desiring his justice and his equity. Which means this. God has, in fact, faithfully kept every single one of his covenant promises that he has made to you and me, his covenant people. And it is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And so, dear saint, if you hear nothing else today, hear this. Just as God was not slack in keeping his word in Nehemiah's day, today God remains faithful to uphold his promises to you. What promises? Listen to these promises given to us by Jesus Christ himself. This is Jesus speaking. Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I will lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Hear this. If you have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ by grace through faith, then God will not be slack in his promises to you of eternal salvation, eternal life, and eternal security. Yes, dear saint, you and I, we wander, we stray, our hearts are prone to wander. That is a fact. We drift, but we remain his people and he remains to be our God. The plan view of Nehemiah chapter 3 is this. God is faithful to his promises and the building of the wall here in this chapter explicitly demonstrate that to be so. Likewise, Nehemiah chapter 3 testifies to God's sovereignty. As Matt stated last week, the accomplishment of the exiles returning and, and the temple being rebuilt and, and now the city walls, all of this is a work of God's providential care. And we see God's sovereignty clearly at work as the most powerful humans, these rulers, ultimately only exist to serve God's divine 
purposes, even to the point in which in Isaiah chapter 45, God calls the pagan king Cyrus by name and calls him my servant. We see the same thing with Pharaoh in the Exodus. God told Moses that he raised Pharaoh up to be the mightiest man in the known world only so that God could destroy him and prove that God is God. The same thing is true of the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar. He was brought to power only to serve God's good purposes. So the plan view of Nehemiah chapter 3 is this. God is faithful to his covenant promises and God is sovereign. And we see that with King Artaxerxes' involvement in the rebuilding of the wall demonstrates that even the most powerful world leaders ultimately serve the purposes of God's king, Jesus. Rest in that this morning. Rest in this truth, dear saint, that every human ruler and leader ultimately exists for the sake of God's glory and his greater good. The one who loves you and who has called you according to his purposes. All world leaders work for him. It doesn't matter who the president is or what clandestine elite forces exist in the world. God alone is the sovereign ruler of the universe. Rest in that this morning. So that is point number one. That is the plan view. Something that you cannot miss as you approach the book of Nehemiah. The rebuilding of the walls explicitly state that God is faithful to his covenant, and he alone is sovereign. And as you study the book of Nehemiah this fall, in your Bible studies, in your personal reading, as we continue the sermon series, do not lose sight of this reality. God is faithful, and he is sovereign. With that, we'll shift now to, our scope will shift to the detail view, uh, specifics of Nehemiah chapter 3. So this is point number two, the detailed view of work. As good Bible students, we don't want to make the mistake of trying to apply a bunch of scripture verses that aren't meant to be applied. What I mean by that is this, the, the book of Nehemiah is not a prescriptive text for us to obey or follow or apply, but rather the genre of Nehemiah is a narrative of source material. So we don't want to approach Nehemiah chapter 3 this morning uh, by beginning to ask ourselves or even for myself to say, what's the most biblical way that Nate White and I can build a wall? Um, That would be a wrong application. That wouldn't be a good idea. It'd be even worse to say, how can Nate and I build the walls of Jerusalem? Uh, That would be a huge mistake. Nehemiah is not written for you and I to obey, but rather for us to observe. And with that being said, Nehemiah provides us with a wealth of material to observe. And what we see here in chapter 3 is a detail of a bunch of work and a bunch of Hebrew names that I couldn't pronounce. And Matt, I'll never forget that you have asked me to read that entire text this morning. But what we see here in chapter 3 is a lot of work, a bunch of work. Hinges are being fabricated, gates are being installed, 
and stone and mortar are being cut and mixed, and there is a lot of work going on here in the rebuilding of God's kingdom. And interestingly enough, it involves human hands. As I shift to this detailed view of work, I want you to see two things. First, I want us to see the sacred nature of work, and secondarily, I want us to see the value of our own work, your work, my work, particularly in the kingdom of God. So first, the sacred nature of work. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, God says the following about Adam and Eve. God says this, and God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. For the advancement of God's glory and the flourishing of mankind, God gave us humans two remarkable and sacred gifts, sex and work. And it's important to note that God gave these gifts to humanity before sin entered the world. Neither sex nor work are the result of the fall. Also, if you notice, God distributes these gifts equally and simultaneously. Think about that for a moment, of what we prioritize. But regardless, both of these gifts are sacred because both of them ultimately display or image the glory of God himself. God is the source of all life and all things generate from him. So in procreation, you and I bear the image of God as our children generate from us. Sex is sacred because procreation displays the glory of God's creative power. Likewise, work is equally sacred because in our labor, we bear the image of God whose workmanship is glorious. Psalm 19 tells us this, the heavens declare the glory of God and the skies above proclaim his handiwork or the work of his hands. So then, sex is good and work is good. In fact, they are sacred. They're not only good, but they're sacred and they're glorious because they image God. And if that's the truth, which it is, then some of you are probably thinking in your head, why do we have or why do I have problems with sex and work if these things are glorious and sacred and good? The problems that you and I face, the things we experience with both sex and work that are negative, stem from sin. See, you and I are prone to take the good gifts of God and misuse them. We sinful humans take the good gift of sex and distort the gift itself, and we distort or mar the glory of God through rape and incest and adultery and homosexuality and pornography. 
Likewise, in our sinfulness, you and I are prone to distort the glory of God in our work. The first way we do this is by worshiping the gift of work instead of the glory of God. Instead of using our vocation as a means or a vehicle to display the glory of God. Some of us in this room are so task-oriented and so driven by productivity that we can easily lose sight of the image of God and replace the glory of God with the image of work. Ultimately, work for some of us becomes God. And I'm aware that even for myself personally, work can lose its rightful place as a vehicle to display God's glory and easily become an idol within my own heart and mind. In contrast, I know that there are others in this room who are on the other side of the spectrum. There are those of us who easily lose sight of work as a sacred gift and view its as a oppressive curse. And whether you are prone to, to lean as viewing work as God, or if you lean in the other direction and view work as a curse, know this, both positions are equally dishonoring of God. Because work is not God, but neither is it a curse. Regardless of, of where you are prone to sin in relation to your work, regardless of how you distort work, the corrective that we all need to take is this. You and I need to see our work as sacred and our work as a gift by which we bear the image of God and contribute to the flourishing and advancement of humanity. You and I need to see that work, our work, is actually sacred. So that's the first thing I want you to observe in this detailed view of work. Work itself is sacred. Your work, the work that you put your hand to, is in fact sacred because God has deemed it to be so. As we continue to observe this detailed view of work, I also want you to see the value of your work in God's kingdom. Like God's people in Nehemiah chapter 3, you and I are citizens of God's kingdom. Sure, we, we haven't been delivered from slavery in Egypt. We weren't rescued from exile. But you and I have been delivered from the bondage of our sin and the penalty of our rebellion through the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And after making atonement for our sin, Jesus Christ ascended to the throne room of heaven where he is seated at the right hand of the Father, reigning and ruling over his kingdom even now. And when you and I place our hope and trust in Jesus Christ by grace through faith, we become citizens of God's kingdom. And as such, our work not only contributes to the flourishing of humanity, but it goes even further by contributing to the advancement of God's kingdom. 
If you are a citizen of God's kingdom by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, then you are also an ambassador of God's kingdom. Not only this, but you are also part of the priesthood in God's kingdom. Which means this, your work, no matter the field or discipline, is loaded with meaning, value, and worth. Mamas of littles, hear this. Your work is full of value. Why do I say that? Because in the course of any given day, you will do a thousand tasks. And each one of those tasks is simultaneously bearing the image of God, contributing to the advancement and flourishing of humanity, and building God's kingdom. Earlier I said it is interesting and noteworthy that here in Nehemiah chapter 3, all this work has been promised by God, ordained by God, providentially brought about by God, but in his eternal wisdom and sovereignty, it is human hands that are fabricating the hinges, installing the gates, and cutting block, and mixing mortar. God in his kindness invites you and I into his work. God doesn't need us, but yet he gives us the beautiful and sacred gift of work. Mamas, the work of sweeping floors and doing laundry is in fact a vehicle by which you personally bear the image of God whose work is displayed in your work. The work you do in changing dirty diapers and wiping snotty noses and reading the same Dr. Seuss book over and over and over again, all of that really does in fact contribute to the advancement and flourishing of humanity. And on top of all of that, the work you do in shepherding the hearts and minds of your children is kingdom work. Because you are, in fact, an ambassador of God's grace to your children. You are the special appointed delegate from God sent to your child to proclaim his glorious grace. And likewise, you are, in fact, mama part of the priesthood of believers in which you are ministering to the hearts and minds of your children with the balm and the salve of the gospel. Mamas, your work in God's kingdom is full of value. And likewise, this is true for you and for me, for all of us, regardless of our discipline or our field, our work is sacred, our work is a gift, and our work is a vehicle by which we bear the image of our Creator and work for His glory and the good and flourishing of humanity. And this is even true if you have retired from a career or if you are an empty nester. You still have work to do in this life. Work is not entirely associated with just a career or a vocation or a job title. All work, the work that lays before you, regardless of your standing in society or what job you have, all work, if you are in the kingdom of God, you are called to be an ambassador and part of the royal priesthood. And your work, 
whether it's cleaning a table, giving a cold cup of water, whether you are a doctor or a lawyer, construction worker, it does not matter. Our work as citizens of God's kingdom has tremendous value and worth for God's glory and the good of the people around us. That's point number two, the detail view. Work is sacred and your work has value. Because these things are true, because God has sovereignly shown himself to be faithful to his covenants, because he is not slack in his promises to you and I, and because our work really does matter, because these things are true, let us as Liberty Church purpose to serve the Lord with gladness through the work of our hands. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, you have given us a beautiful and sacred gift in work. Father, I pray that you would help us to see its value and its worth. I pray, Father, that we would go into this week, this work week, uh, whether we are caring for uh, people or spreadsheets, I pray that we would see the value of our work and how our work in and of itself displays your glory and is good for humanity. And ultimately, if we are in Christ and we are part of his kingdom, then every ounce and detail of our work has kingdom value. Help us, Father, by the power of your Holy Spirit to believe that and live this week like these things are true, because they are. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Liberty Church. To learn more about our church or to listen to previous recordings, visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org.